Cartography Podcast. In December 2019, Apple became the first trillion-dollar company. Today, it hit $2 trillion, or $1.99 trillion. It's almost there. But the point is that in a period of eight months, Apple nearly doubled its valuation from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. It's a similar case for Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and all the other tech giants. Um, meanwhile, people are being weaponized against small businesses. You have people writing negative reviews for small businesses, criticizing their coronavirus response, public shaming of individuals participating in local economies, public shaming of small business owners as individuals, and in some cases, the actual arrest of small business owners. At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, like, what exactly am I doing? Am I simply looking out for the health of other people, or am I being manipulated into carrying out a corporate agenda or the agenda of somebody else? Is it both? I don't think it's as if this was all necessarily cooked up in some shady backroom international meeting years ago by the Gates Foundation and the Rothschilds. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that they do fund think tanks, global development funds, and all sorts of research that is used by corporate strategists. And they do meet at Davos, Bilderberg, Sun Valley, and other conferences uh, to discuss what the future will look like. But to me, there's an intersection between opportunism and the driving market incentives of globalization and international capital consolidation. In other words, they didn't have to release a virus onto the population for this all to happen. Events happen in real time, and our response is limited by the institutions and the structures that we have at the moment. So it's not necessarily surprising that institutions would benefit from crises. In fact, it should be completely expected that this would happen. What do you think about that, Al? Well, um, first of all, Jay, I'm going to have to ask you to stop making such a big deal out of the Apple thing. I mean, what's a trillion dollars amongst friends? Um, <laughs> second of all, yeah, I, I think that you, um, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head. Um, this is, you know, whether there's a direct uh, conscious effort to weaponize people, which definitely I would tend to kind of, um, you know, lean towards that interpretation uh, on, on some level. Uh, I think that's definitely the effect that we're seeing. In fact, I think you could argue that that's essentially, it's not only what happens in each one of these kind of major recessions. In other words, this like, uh, corporatization of the economy, you know, by, um, like each time one of these happens every, whatever it is, you know, eight to 10 years or so, we have another one of these crashes or recessions. And, uh, I find that that's exactly the effect that they tend to have, you know, the big corporations tend to get bailed out. The, um, media narrative rings the bell of, you know, outcry for, increased regulations because their narrative is focused on the idea that it's the lack of government regulations, which have, uh, brought about these, you know, they're usually treated like events, you know, these recessions, like they just sort of happen, uh, when I think uh, a little bit of, of depth into the nature of the monetary system makes it pretty clear to me that they are completely inevitable. And, and really, um, if there's any randomness to it, it's maybe precisely when they happen. 
Although I think there's also a lot of evidence that, you know, the timing of these things is, uh, is quite engineered. The, um, the great depression is actually like a really, really well-known example of that, how the, um, largest shareholders in the U S economy pulled their, you know, they all sold their, their shares right before the, the crash. Well, you know, people bring up that point and like, it can't be any other way, like just based on the way like stock trading and markets work, like the only way it goes down is if the biggest shareholders sell. <laughs> so like, yeah, so that's just naturally like the way that it like actually works, you know, and, which like, I guess is what's kind of so to me, like alarming about the idea of having at least in such a, on such a large scale, this, uh, kind of, um, you know, I guess you could call it like a, like a, a financial economy, you know, like the, the, the idea that, um, the, the, the economic activity gradually becomes more and more, uh, sort of structured around what happens in the stock markets and the prices of shares rather than the supply and demand cycles and, and, you know, actual kind of objective realities within what we would really think of as the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, like just the pace of the acceleration of the centralization of the capital is the, is the interesting part to me. I mean, there had like, there's never been a trillion dollar company prior to December, 2019. And now, I mean, these companies are worth Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and others are nearly worth double that in a period of like eight months. So I mean, like, this is like, <laughs> I mean, it's really just an incredible. It's ramping up. Yeah. We're it, living in like a, a really, to me, kind of horrifying time. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm getting pretty scared. I'm not gonna lie to you. Like it's, uh, um, you know, it's weird because I feel like I have been in the frame of mind to expect this kind of thing for years now, but I guess I never really thought it would happen so soon and I never yeah, really well, thought it would happen so fast. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the point about the speed at which the, the capital is being siphoned up by these handful of companies is that like there's, we're getting to a point where there's really not that much left like outside for them to siphon away. Like you, you see the effects like in the local and the global economy, like it's, it's the same stores everywhere. And, and, and even that's consolidating. So like, there's no reason to think that Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, whether they're worth 2 trillion or one and a half trillion, that's what they're worth now. There's no reason to think they won't be worth a hundred trillion in 10 or 20 years. I mean, like, do you ever read the book, uh, Capitalist Realism? Have you heard of that? No, no, I haven't. It's written by uh, Mark Fisher, but he has this great quote in it. And the quote is, it's easier to imagine an end to the world than an end to capitalism. Like along the same lines of thought of that, it's easier to imagine Congress removing the antitrust laws than Congress actually enforcing them. So like, there's really no reason to expect that this would slow down. I mean, in fact, you, you should expect it to continue ramping up. So like point being, I think the, like the local effects that we're going to see of this are just going to continue to increase and, and it's going to become more of a fixture in all of our lives as this goes on. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, very much like, um, I, I don't really know 
too much, like I can't really quote him intelligently, but uh, I know the Austrian economist Hayek um, was kind of, you know, one of the things that he talked about was that uh, to the degree that you begin to add kind of um, government control of markets, you enter this inevitable process of increasing government intervention because you have incentivized lobbying and you've basically created a situation where, I mean, it, it, it's sort of obvious. I feel like people talk about it all the time, but no one seems to realize that it's just like a fixture of the system as it is. You know, obviously you're going to have the, the corporations with the most money are going to be those who have the most access to legislators for a variety of different reasons. I mean, basically our political system just sort of allows that. Um, and uh, I don't think it should really surprise anyone that, you know, over the last hundred years or so, I mean, I think it's become much more obvious since World War II. But really, I think all of this started around the time that they instituted the Federal Reserve, I would argue. Um, and it's just an increasing corporatization. And if people understand what corporations are, they're basically government subsidized businesses. You know, they're, they're the businesses that the government has decided, you know, those need to be protected. Those need to be used as mechanisms for certain kinds of development. Um, and I, I mean, I would, I would take the opposite angle on this and say that the corporations have colonized the government. And I know this is a point where we, we disagree, but I also wanted to say, um, this, I want to have this conversation with um, Mark Wilcox. I don't know if you guys follow, follow him on Twitter, but you should. He's really good. Um, yeah. But he's like a hyper-capitalist type. But mm-hmm. going back to um, the need to regulate the markets, like people complain about the regulation of the markets. And it, it's a great paradox because we know that we need regulation of the markets. Like you can't just have pure hyper-capitalism because then the markets start to shape the humans. And I mean, like, I think that's what you're seeing with, um, social media and, and other things, but it, it we'll have a discussion about that in the future. And that'll be, that'll be an interesting one, but go on. continue. Yeah. I mean, and, and I would, I would, um, I definitely look forward to that discussion. I guess I would, I, the one thing I would say to that is that I tend to take the perspective that, you know, I'm not a, an ideologue in, in terms of, you know, for like, uh, for free markets or for regulation specifically, to me, it ultimately comes down to scale. And I think that, um, you know, there, there's just a lot of conflation in, in common language when we talk about economics or, you know, kind of socioeconomic solutions. Uh, we just kind of talk about them all like they're the same thing, as if regulating the economy at like the level of a village of 100 people is the same thing as controlling the prices of commodities at like a federal or global level. Um, I think that, I mean, you know, the, the definition of a market itself requires a certain kind of regulation, if you will, because I mean, a market is a, uh, it's, it's a kind of, it requires a culture in a sense. It requires people to agree that they're going to interact in a, relatively restricted way. Of course, it can't be. I mean, this is the other thing. I, I think there's a little bit of a fallacy with people when, the, you know, the idea of um, regulation versus free markets or even, you know, 
anarchy versus statism, I think there's an assumption um, in a lot of folks with a more kind of a statist or regulatory mindset that in the absence of those things, that there will be chaos. And I think most of what I know in my life, in, in, in my experience, and I mean, I can't really, unfortunately, I'm not really capable of documenting, like I can't really make a very strong case with evidence for this. I could probably do a better job if I did some research, but point is, I think it's actually, it shows the opposite. If you look at what actually happens with people, that, that, that there's this um, concept of spontaneous order which I put a lot of stock in. And I tend to see kind of that dynamic as being a little bit more relevant. Um, one thing, though, that I did briefly want to respond to that you mentioned earlier in, in your introduction, I just thought it was kind of funny, because you said you don't tend to think that this was uh, cooked up in some shady back room. By <laughs> well, I left, I left the door open a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was hoping. I've been waiting patiently for my chance to chime in with this. And, you know, for the record, I, I, I agree. Like, I guess I kind of want to like clarify for people. I don't want to be like the crazy conspiracy guy on this thing, even though I kind of am. Um, I mean, I have, I'd like to think I've come a long way since the, the Alex Jones days. You know, I really don't <laughs> like, I don't focus on the theories. I don't focus on like who done it. I, I guess the way I would say it is I just take a generally conspiratorial point of view. Well, I mean, it's important to, to recognize all of the possibilities. Yeah. You know, I mean, people who dismiss possibilities because they're quote unquote conspiratorial or something are just not analyzing the entire picture. Exactly. Yeah. To me, it just seems like a, a totally cultural response, you know, like they're not, they're just not listening, you know what I mean? And that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't, I've learned to kind of stop getting frustrated with that and just like leave people alone. And, and it um, is interesting culturally, the differences between uh, like cultures that are more conspiratorial and and ones that aren't like yeah, Eastern, most, Eastern European yeah. countries are mostly pretty conspiratorial <laughs> and even and, like and, Central and South American too. Yeah, man. It, most of the, this is the thing uh, you and I have talked about this, right? But I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on here. So there's this wonderful Ted talk by uh, Lawrence Lessig, who is the, a lot of people know him. He's the guy who became pretty popular with his Ted talk about um, the reform of our elections. And he just came up with this really like, funny, clever little, you know, story to illustrate just how absurdly corrupt our, our political system is. Uh, but he related this very interesting little story that I read later. And it was, he was talking about a trip that he took back in the eighties, I think to the Soviet union. And he was, uh, he struck up a conversation with a man on a train and, you know, the man told him, um, you know, uh, you Americans have like this, um, idea that you have this incredibly free and open political system and, and culture of, of, you know, um, free press and, and all of this. But uh, actually, in Russia, we have a, a much freer system than you. Um, and, you know, Lawrence Lessig kind of was puzzled by this and to, you know, go on, explain. Um, and the man said, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, of course, true that our government you know, constantly like plasters every billboard with this absurd propaganda that, you know, um, it's just like, it's everywhere and it's constant. And yes, the government lies through their teeth about everything. However, everyone knows that and acts accordingly. And nobody takes any of this nonsense seriously. Um, whereas compared to your country, 
you have a system where, you know, people kind of, they've managed to frame propaganda as though it's not propaganda. And it is pretty much the most effective kind of propaganda that has ever existed. And so, you know, the, the culture of just political discourse and free press in the United States is actually very weak. Yeah. Um, Curtis Yarvin makes this point often, but he refers to it as a type of formalism where he would prefer to see uh, like the, the manifestations of power or, and the institutions formally represented as such. Um, so I guess like in Eastern Europe, it's, it's almost so comical that you can't help but be confronted by it. So it's, it's almost like so informal that it's actually formal. But in the U.S., it's like trying so hard to be legitimate that most people really do believe that it is legitimate in that sense. Mm -hmm. There's just this whole, it's a long enduring narrative in the United States, you know, because there really is this history of, and I would be very critical of, you know, I think people have a tendency to romanticize the good old days quite a bit as well, but you know, there really were um, both politically and culturally in the United States. um, I would say right up until the mid 20th century, you know, there was a real culture of open discourse, um, a media which was focused on kind of having a, a debate. Um, and yes, it was, it tended to be relatively partisan, but um, partisanship at, you know, back in those days was a little bit more accurate to what people were actually interested in. Um, because, there was also just kind of much less that was subject to politics, especially at the federal level. Um, and so there was just a lot, you know, the, the points of disagreement were much fewer. Yeah, that, that's another interesting point that's under talked about, uh, is that like, you could actually like, like if you were a political scholar, like you could go back and trace like the politicization of like additional roles of government. Like it, it wasn't always that, the Supreme court was politicized or different, different government departments. Like we've clearly gone like objectively gone down the path of increased politicization within the government. Yeah. And it's not only increased politicization. I mean, I I think you could actually make a pretty strong case that the Supreme court was quite politicized, at least from like very early on, like it wasn't conceived of in that way, but famously John Marshall um, who was a Supreme Court justice appointed by John Adams, the second president. Um, he kind of set this precedent of Supreme Court, like like legislation by the Supreme Court, essentially, you know, legislation by interpretation. And I think that's actually, um, it's, uh, it's a pretty fixed part of the American political culture at this time. But where I, I think... I mean, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're trying to say. I, I would definitely agree with what it sounds like you're saying, which is like the the overall process of taking more and more of the processes of government out of the hands of voters and legislators. And I've actually, um, you know, I, I've actually, so I guess in a way it's kind of depoliticization, uh, but to me, it's very significant. A lot of it, I've mentioned this before in the episode where we were talking to Mary uh, about a lot of the quote unquote reforms that took place under the Woodrow Wilson 
administration. Woodrow Wilson, for those of you who don't know, is, um, you know, if you're any kind of like a, uh, um, a libertarian or really even anyone who kind of has any sympathetic feelings for American democracy or any of those kinds of notions, uh, Woodrow Wilson should be considered, um, you know, a supervillain for you because he, he really, he really, um, not only did he put the federal reserve in place, but he, he basically created the system of government that we enjoy today, which is one of, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's a culture of public administration. Basically it's, it's these, uh, government, uh, agencies and departments rather than government by local legislation it used to be, um, but, you know, before we get too far, too much farther into that, I do want to just briefly mention so that I don't forget to your point about how this whole thing probably wasn't cooked up in a back room. I just want to direct people to uh, and I will link to this in the show notes, but there was, in fact, an event and it was called Event 201 um, that took place in the fall of 2019. And it was a panel of, uh, you know, epidemiologists and all sorts of friends of Bill Gates and they got together and uh, planned out exactly what something like this would be like. Um, and, it, and it happened basically, you know, according to the story we're hearing, it happened as this thing was really kicking off in, in China, you know, like as that was going on, they were having this conference, this event 201. Yeah, I've read about that. You know, I think they do all sorts of um, like contingency planning and oh, sure. all sorts of stuff like this in think tanks. And I'm, I think they're definitely doing it to figure out like where they could capitalize on the opportunity that an event like this would present itself with. And then I think they also use it to try to lobby the government to get like increased funding and subsidies More and funding. stuff. Yep. I mean, but to your point, that doesn't rule out that they wouldn't just go ahead and do it. But Mm -hmm. I'm cautious about going any further than that. So am I. I. I'm cautious too. I think it's important to be cautious. I think it's important not to, you know, believe too firmly in something that you can't possibly know, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, so we weren't in the room. We don't know who these people really were, what they were really talking about. Um, I, my overall perspective though, is that in any given scenario, all things being equal, it's just more intelligent to assume that there's something shady going on. I mean, you could also like you could also take it from the perspective that if we we know that the economic incentives uh, for vaccines are, I mean, incredible. It's a tremendous yeah. opportunity for the pharmaceutical and healthcare industries. So like, it's conceivable that. So they were doing like gain of function research. I don't know how much you know about this at that lab, but it's like a specifically really dangerous type of research where they're like working on essentially making the virus as contagious uh -huh. as quickly as possible. So like, I feel like this is what, uh, uh, what's his name? Weinstein was saying they were doing in China, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, this is what they were doing at, at the Wuhan lab where the, where the virus uh -huh. presumably uh, came from. But the point is maybe like, in like when they're thinking about the game theory of doing that research, whether it's Bill Gates or the Fauci, or I also wanted to note that Fauci ran the National Institute of Health, who did who does fund the Wuhan lab to do gain of function research. It's an important point. <laughs> but but maybe the game theory to them is 
okay, if, if we get gain of function research to that, that'll produce, you know, another huge market opportunity for us if it works out and yeah, there's a risk of it getting out, but you know, if it gets out, that's also a market opportunity. So like they, it could have just been Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. as simple as that, you know? Fair enough. Yeah, totally. And, and, uh, you know, as, as Rahm Emanuel said, um, who was, uh, Barack Obama's, um, God, what was he? I know he was the mayor of Chicago at some point, but was he like Obama's campaign manager? Is that what he was? I don't remember. I don't remember. Anyway, Rahm Emanuel, everybody knows Rahm Emanuel. His point is, he's, you know, he's a gangster, basically. Uh, and he said very famously, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that is a, a, a mantra, whether put in those words or not, of, you know, like to, politicians. And in my... In my worldview, that explains like seven out of 10 things. Mm -hmm. And then I I think there's at least three, three or four out of 10 that might not fall under that. Right. So in other words, you're, you're specifically saying it's like a thing that happens and then they just seize on the opportunity rather than it being premeditated. Right. But I, I also don't want to. I don't want to say that it isn't that, yeah, that that it isn't premeditated 30% of the time. I mean, I would assume that it is. Yeah. I I mean, I guess I tend to look at it a little bit less in terms of individual events and more in terms of at least like my understanding of how just like all of these systems work at a global level. And to me, especially based on my experience having worked in a, you know, massive bureaucracy of, of the U.S. government. And of course, I was I was in intelligence, too. So I was dealing with like classified information. I have a very clear understanding of how information can be compartmentalized and how you can get people within one organization who think they're on the same team to do completely different things. And nobody knows what anyone else is doing. So I guess it's, and if you, if you kind of come to realize just how much in the world period is administered by these types of massive bureaucracies, um, you know, to me, it's just, I, I don't see why there would not be some amount of kind of manipulation, uh, in, pretty much everything that seems to me like it would benefit those who have the means to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree with that. Um, I think in a lot of, in a lot of the cases now, I think it's even more interesting. Like we're we're in such a late stage of the, the globalization process that like you really have to start looking at like individual actors that are, in leadership positions in China or corporate executive positions in the United States. And like, you really do have to wonder like whether they're all on this, like not whether they're all, but like whether there is some of them working on the same page towards the same goals. And, and it's almost irrelevant whether they're like specifically talking about it or not. I mean, this is why I think the market incentives are so important because it really explains it all without having to get conspiratorial. But then you could also just, I mean, then I like to grant some small percentage of cons- possibility for conspiracy. Cause so then I think that kind of covers all of, all of my bases, at least in, <laughs> in thinking about it. Right. And I, I mean, I guess the, the thing I would say to that is that I see, 
our, um, you know, through the construction of the monetary system as it is, I see that as the primary lever of control for what we think of as a market, but what in fact is a much more inherently controlled and controllable set of processes than I, I think we realize, um, just based on the way that the money supply is issued and controlled. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the most important economic issue going on now. Um, I mean, basically, it's just a collapse of currencies over and over that have been occurring over the last, like, uh, 10 or 15 years. I mean, longer, longer than that, but mostly in the last 10 or 15 years since 2008. I mean, like, Argentina defaults on its debt, like, Mm-hmm. regularly um yeah. even even now i mean the price of gold just hit all-time highs uh this mm-hmm. month um which which is really interesting i mean ultimately it's just like a loss in faith of the dollar but then mm-hmm. you've got all of these other countries that are denominated in in u.s dollars so they're even more leveraged to the decay of the dollar than than the united states is and then like it's also interesting to think about it in in the context of what are we like? What are we doing with the dollars? Is that we're printing them and putting them into the corporations? So like, it seems to me like we and and this was especially obvious in uh, Trump's first speech in response to the coronavirus. He said, "Look, we're going to use the infrastructure that's available." And he went on to name like ten corporations of like mm-hmm. who's going to help us get through this. But I think like we're at the point where like like it's kind of a complicated point to make. But I think like. Like the dollar is its own incentive structure. I think corporations are their own incentive structure. Then maybe like cryptocurrencies is another incentive structure, but like they're all interrelated and dependent on each other. And it's really just a question of like who's, which one is left like holding the bag where the most utility is needed, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I um, that definitely makes sense. I guess I, I kind of tend to think of it more in terms of shareholders than I do corporations. And I, I do think there's a lot to the point that you're making. That's like all these different, you know, kind of sectors of, of power, I guess you could call them um, levers of power. You know, it's, it's also uh, to the point where it's like, there's like a saying, it's like, if I owe you a dollar, it's my mm-hmm. problem. But if I owe you a million dollars, that's your problem. You know? Yeah. So like, you could go like back and like trace like, like the Rothschilds and all of this into like the, the founding of the fed and the banking system and all of this. But ultimately like we're on trillions of dollars, <laughs> like we're trillions of dollars down the hole. So like, to me, it's more like the people in charge of the fed and the government are calling the shots instead of how it might have originated. Does that make sense? It does. Except to the extent that like, um, and this is getting into, you know, I mean, I, I don't, this is also kind of, uh, not, I don't think of it as a complicated point, but I, I recognize that it's, uh, it's very, a lot of people have a hard time with this. Um, you know, to me, I find it very helpful to very, very critically analyze all of these concepts that we take for granted money being one of them. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of fascinating things to say about money. I don't want to dismiss its uh, its utility by any means, but it is in fact a concept. It's not a real thing. And 
especially so in the case of the the fiat currency system that we operate under today it's the money that we use is is nothing it's just it's it's a uh, collection of of symbols and um i guess to the extent that these people who control these systems can continue to get the masses to believe that they are real well they are i mean in the sense that people are doing these things you know like if i believe that my dollar is going to get me a gallon of milk then i'm going to use it that way and in that sense it works that way but the reality of the situation is that none of that is actually happening i mean it's really just a medium of exchange and you can use anything as a medium of exchange you know it's it's uh, fascinating when they talk about like printing the money i mean people will justify justify the bailouts this way that we're printing the money to give to the corporations so that people can work and keep their jobs <laughs> so it's like we're printing money so that you can work yeah. for somebody else <laughs> but but it, like they don't even recognize the absurdity in that statement. hundred percent. I I feel like the, the the one example that I kind of like to give people, and you know, I don't want to offend anybody who's of a, a you know religious or spiritual persuasion. I, I have a lot of respect for for all that stuff. But you know, uh, I mean, the more kind of institutional aspect, or you think of like a uh, you know uh, a Catholic wedding, right? Like they get the priest to perform the wedding. And then, you know, once the priest genuflects and says the blessing, okay, well, now you're married. Now you guys can go and live in a house and make babies and, you know, do all of the things that married people actually do. Now that I say, boom, you're married, you know, but in reality, nothing actually happened there. It's just, you understand, it's it's just a collective uh, sort of declaration of what people are doing. And I think to the extent that that they have kind of convinced people through, um, you know, multiple generations of social conditioning and behavioral conditioning, that these things are legitimate. Yeah, I mean, it, it works that way. But it's just it's so crucial to me to for people to understand that uh, just how much control we have over this, even as individuals, but you know, especially on a collective level, like, how few of us it would actually take to kind of, you know, frankly, just topple these kinds of systems. I don't know if I agree with this, but uh, I, like the the fundamental problem with it is that it like our system enables like it, it's really just the debt problem where you're spending future earnings in the present. But and once you go down that road, there's there's no reason to think that it should ever stop. And that's exactly what's happened. So like the debt has gone completely exponential and that has hindered investment and R&D that would have provided um, like organic growth in the economy for future generations. So like, so what's gone on over like since 2008 and even earlier is that like the boomer generation has, has essentially just been siphoning all of the money out of the system through debt. And there's not much like like we're getting we're really getting to the extremes on the on the exponential curve of, of like what's gonna of where that's gonna lead i mean whether it's gonna be like a war or a reimagining of the financial system like through some sort of crypto option or something but 
there's got, like something is going to have to fundamentally change. I mean, I would think in in as early as like 10, 10 years, I would, I would think it, it just gets to the breaking point before then. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, except the only point that I would make is to, to just clarify that while there is, again, there's a certain truth to everything you just said, debt isn't actually real. There's no such thing as debt. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm actually backing up your point. Like that's actually the problem is that you could just, yeah. you could just take it on as long as somebody's willing to accept it. And then what the government has done is guaranteed the debt of so many industries that were too big to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so really like, so, so yeah, there, there's just no reason that it wouldn't stop exponentially accumulating. Yeah. The, 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 as long as we continue to, believe it, which I think it's, it's plausible to assume that as long as they continue to uh, indoctrinate most people in the developed world with, you know, 10 to 12 years of mandatory schooling for the early part of their lives, um, that people are going to generally continue to just take these mechanisms for granted as legitimate. Um, it, in reality, if you look at it, it functions absolutely no differently than a mafia organization. Uh, that's exactly the relationship that we have to the government is the relationship that a, a merchant has to a, a local crime syndicate. You know, they show up for their peace. They claim to provide protection. They don't provide any evidence for any of that. They uh, get their way because in the case of the mafia, they just back that up with the threat of violence, which our government, of course, does too. But the difference is that in the case of government, people are given all of this indoctrination into the idea that this is not just some group of people that are taking from you and redistributing and doing things. No, no, no. This is like, you know, we have a flag and there's a government and it's like this whole magical thing. And I think to to the extent that people really believe that, it's exactly like the example with the priest, you know, um, there's nothing stopping people from living together as man and wife and having a family doing it, but they've been taught that you have to do this thing. And once you do this thing, then it's okay. Yeah, it's especially interesting on the individual example at this point, because it's like, so during coronavirus, what they did to save the housing market from crashing. Cause it, I mean, if they, it would have gotten absolutely annihilated if they didn't step in uh, because people mm-hmm. just wouldn't have been able to pay the mortgages. And then mm-hmm. presumably the bank should have seized the homes and then there should have been a flood of supply of houses and then prices should have dropped. But mm-hmm. we, in order to prevent that, what they did was say that God knows they don't want that. <laughs> well, yeah, we can't have an actual market or else it might go down. <laughs> no. So that's a problem. Right. <laughs> but what they did was say that if you have a mortgage, you just don't have to make payments this year or interest payments. I forget if it was total payments or interest payments or something like that. But uh-huh. they're, they're basically giving you like, if you can't pay your, like we could just tack it on at the end of the 30 years and you won't lose your house. So like by removing the risk, I mean, now it, that's, I mean, this is like to Taleb's anti-fragile point, but by, by removing the, the risk, we're really just like pushing the can down the road and exponentially increasing the risk in the future. Mm-hmm. But we're really at a point where the whole economy is filled with different schemes like this. But like to bring it back to the individual level, like you have to start asking like, why shouldn't I just open a trading and earn investment account, take out maximum leverage, buy the most expensive house that I can and just commit to this because they're not like, they can't allow it to go down. 
I mean, that's how serious the situation is now. Like they cannot allow the housing market to go down. It would it would just destroy the entire economy. So so they're gonna the government's gonna step in every time, and you know they are. And it's the same thing with the stock market that we saw. I mean, they have to step in to keep it going, or it's gonna break. So like every and the other problem with this is everybody understanding this point then is incentivized to just continue ramping up the debt and the consumption. So like it's. It just all goes back to the theme of, of, of acceleration, you know. Well, especially in addition to the fact that um, all economic growth requires debt, right? Because all, all um, basically investment capital is just money that's printed and loaned. So, you know, th- there's just this, this fundamental acceptance of the need for debt to do anything because it really is like that. I mean, anything on any kind of significant level you know, there's just, there's no, people just don't have any ability to do anything without debt. Yeah. You know, and this is, I was having a conversation with a friend about this the other day. It's interesting. Like I was, I was, we were talking about whether like a peasant in India is richer or poorer than the average American. And his position was that quality of life is so much better in the United States. And that even if you're a hundred thousand dollars in student debt, that you're richer here. But I, I, I pushed back on that. I don't really tend to take that view of the situation at all i mean if you have a hundred thousand dollars of debt like you've sold away at least 30 years like working you know whereas Mm -hmm. the the person in india is actually free to do whatever they want to do i mean to to some degree i mean they get get a little money and they can move around and do whatever they want but like if you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt i mean like you can't just like leave for a year or like try something different for a couple years like you you're not free at all if you have debt you know Oh, a hundred percent. I would even take it a step further, and I would, um, I would say that uh, just the. I think it's important not to get romantic with these kinds of conversations. You and I have talked about this kind of thing a lot. You know, um, there there are pluses and minuses and complexities to everything, and I'm not necessarily so sure that that I would just like pick up and go live in some village in India right now, but I would be inclined to agree with you. And, but, but for a slightly different reason, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right that uh, our system of like this kind of voluntary debt enslavement, you know, by the middle class is, uh, is crazy. And, and people don't realize, I don't think people realize how miserable they are. Like I, I, that's kind of how I would put it. Like I don't, because everybody, this is what's, what's so unimaginably brutal about our culture in a lot of ways is like, there's so much media out there and a lot of it has to do with social media and the way that it's just like, you know, this idealized picture of themselves that people are putting out there. There's so much you can say about this, but basically to me, the reason that it's so terrible to be a Western person, not just an American, but particularly, I would say, an American, um, because we we have kind of taken this farther than maybe any culture on Earth, uh, is because we don't have people. That's really what it what it comes down to. I mean, we 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 have. Um, I mean, it's it's indisputable that even uh, like a homeless person in America has, you know. Uh, just in, in strict economic terms, they have a better quality of life than probably, you know, a lot of people with jobs in a place like India. 
I mean, even a, a homeless person in the United States has access to things like, you know, hot running water and urban sanitation and de facto free healthcare and, you know, de facto free food. Free and, drugs you know, too. Think, free drugs free if you drugs, live in Seattle or uh, San Francisco. <laughs> all sorts of interesting things like that. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the middle class person in the United States, um, I think in a lot of ways suffers even more than, than the poor because the poor in the U S have, in a sense, they've kind of, um, maintained a certain semblance of community. And again, that's a vast generalization. There are a lot of exceptions to that, but um, that tends to be the case. And, you know, that peasant in India, I mean, he might have all sorts of, you know, difficulties grinding down on him on a daily basis and just making him suffer and struggle. But at the end of the day, he knows that he's got like probably a, a large extended family um, he's got, you know, just a network of human beings on whom he can depend. And we don't have that. Yeah. I mean, that's like, like we know that the largest, um, uh, like market group of antidepressant consumers is like middle-aged middle-class women, you know, but point being, mm -hmm. I think there's like a lot of ways in what we're, what we've been describing throughout this episode manifests itself in people's lives and they just because they're not able to um, articulate it as such or put their finger on what, what what it actually is I think you're seeing like a lot of um, like like manifestations of that understanding in the society now you know like whether it's mm -hmm. people protesting or people looting or people taking antidepressants or opiates or smoking weed every day you know I think it's just mm -hmm. it's it's really the same sort of I think it's fundamentally an economic um, it, it, like like an economic response that, that's what i think it is 100 i mean I don't, I don't think it's an accident at all that the united states is by far the largest market for drugs you know in the world i mean this is kind of like in this whole war on drugs narrative you know which you often hear in response from the kind of uh not only the governments of these third world countries that we like you know basically you know like colombia mexico whatever that we sort of in a way, I think a lot of Americans like blame these countries for, you know, trafficking drugs into our nation and all of this. And it's like their response to that is like, well, if you people weren't so fucked up <laughs> and you weren't so miserable and addicted to drugs, then this wouldn't be happening. You know, like how come we how come the drugs go there? You know, like they don't take drugs. Yeah, you know, they're not addicts. I mean, this this is another example to me of one of those vicious circle type events where like one one thing leads to the next and then it just becomes a circle of causes contributing to to themselves again over time you know like whether it's working in the same dead-end job for 30 years or being in debt for your whole life or being separated from your family i mean it's just like like the, it's just the whole culture feeds into this <laughs> feeds into all of these uh, like vices and, and such things so speaking of which, dude, I, uh, I might get to put a house on my property pretty soon, um, which, uh, you know, very much along the lines of what we're talking about right now, um, you know, is, is a very tricky and challenging thing to do. Uh, there are a lot of systems of regulations and trade barriers and all these things that, uh, create a system where 
the construction of a home is made infinitely more expensive than what it necessarily needs to be. Is that due to mostly local laws or are there it's like a federal ton of different things? There's everything there. There. Uh, so at the local level, the big thing that you have to worry about, this is a fascinating subject by the way. Uh, but what it is, is that local, uh, zoning boards. So, People who have kind of, who know anyone who maybe like works in real estate in urban areas or maybe, you know, um, ever know anything about kind of real estate development, uh, have some concept of this dynamic where it's, it's like insanely difficult to build anything on what is supposedly your land in, in the United States. And um, I mean, most of that narrative applies to big cities. Uh, you can kind of, I suppose you can see how in an environment like that, there would almost kind of need to be um, a much more direct, you know, regulatory mechanism because it's just so collectivized and dense and, you know. Um, but basically, the, these zoning boards, what, what happens is when you have a piece of land and you want to build a house, uh, you know, you first have to find yourself a uh, general contractor, whether that's like a, a, a company that builds houses or just like a small, you know, small independent builder. Um, and you, you essentially craft a contract with them, a tentative contract that says, you know, they're going to build you a house for X amount of money. And it's tentative because you then have to take that contract to the bank and get pre-approved for financing. But then what happens is that the prices of the construction materials, um, lumber being a big one, fluctuate in such a constant and volatile manner that really that price that the contractor quoted you, because you know it takes a couple of months for banks to process loans, right? So it's been two months since you signed the contract or you know whatever you call it, the agreement with the contractor, and. Um, and now lumber costs something completely different. Now, the reason that lumber costs something completely different is probably, you know, a little bit too complicated for, for me to really describe in detail. But, uh, you know, my basic understanding of how commodities are traded and distributed throughout the world includes quite a lot of trade restrictions, regulations, you've got companies like the, you know, companies, uh, organizations like the WTO uh, getting involved in things like this. And there are just, there are always a lot of mechanisms that have a pretty measurable effect on the prices that people pay. Yeah. So for, for commodities, there's like a whole futures market where each mm -hmm. um, individual commodity is traded internationally in futures contracts. So what's that, what that means is like on on large scale, and this is what ultimately determines the price, multinational corporations that buy the largest quantities of the commodities are agreeing, I mean, in the same way that you're agreeing with the contractor to like build your house in the future, it's the same for a futures contract where you're like the, the corporation is paying to buy, paying X amount of dollars to buy lumber and have it delivered on X date in the future. So, so it's like a future, it's a payment for a future, uh, for a future good. And like, ultimately mm -hmm. that's what determines the price, um, 
of commodities and, and it even like affects it on the local level. But like reason, recently, this is what happened with uh, the oil market when the coronavirus broke out. So if you saw the headlines, like oil futures actually went negative um, for the first month during the coronavirus because there was no demand for the oil because all of the businesses were shutting down. So they had excess oil and it would actually cost them and it would cost them money to ship and distribute the oil. So that justified a negative price. So, so there's all sorts of crazy things like this that happen in the futures market that, uh, that could distort and alter the price in the short term. And meanwhile, my property is primarily woods. I've got lumber for days. Um, you know, I don't own like a, you know, all the relatively significant co- the equipment that it would take to process all of that. But there are, uh, you know, businesses within my local area that do. And you would think that you could hire someone to just come and no, you can't because you have to, in order for them, for that to be worth their while due to these kinds of pricing schemes that we're talking about right now. See, they can't just turn around and sell that lumber on the open market because there's no local market for these things is basically what it comes down to. They've kind of like, I don't know if it's globalized or nationalized or what, but they've massively centralized these kinds of systems of of distribution of, of these materials. So that's one kind of pain in the ass aspect of this. The other thing is once you've done all that, you then have to take your, um, your plans to the town board, wherever you are, you're at, or if you're in a city, you know, the, the neighborhood council, whatever the hell they call it. And basically this is a, an elected body of local residents, uh, who get to vote on basically whether or not you are allowed to proceed with your project. And, you know, I can definitely see um, in both cities and in a rural community like the one where my land is located, a very strong, very reasonable argument for a mechanism like that. You know, after all, I don't necessarily want some, you know, trillion dollar corporation showing up in my little town and building some massive facility if the people who live there don't want that. You know what I mean? I think that like that there are just reasonable kind of um, this is kind of the whole like thing I was talking about earlier with scale, you know, like at a local scale like that, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that like people should just, you know, you can't conflate a word like market when you have people coming in from God knows where with trillions of dollars, like they're not a part of your local market mechanism. So as a local community, if you want to put in place some rules that say, Hey, you know, we want this and we don't want that. I think that's reasonable. However, the problem comes in where all of these, uh, town board members are people who live right there in that neighborhood. And they have a direct incentive to prevent anything from happening, which they are concerned might um, affect their property values in a negative way. So they, uh, they tend to favor, and again, this is a generalization, but they tend to favor, you know, projects which conform to whatever's there already. Um, in, in my view, you know, 
banks in general have a very kind of crude and unsophisticated way of judging, you know, what is kind of risk and what isn't, what is sort of going to affect. I mean, I just, to me, I think there are so many interesting ways that you can uh, kind of manage property values and, and different alternatives that you can offer people that, that they'd be more than happy to pay money for. So, so I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't think it's very intelligent. I think it's based in uh, a kind of fear of losing the, uh, the, the, the value of their assets, which is, you know, their, their homes, their property. And it's like one of these situations where I almost want to make an argument for a more centralized way of doing it. Like I've heard, well, you know, almost, and then I'll get around to my point here, but it, like I've heard people say, well, if you just had like, let's say if you had a county board, which actually gets to determine these things, right? So they're still relatively local, but they don't, they don't live right there and they don't have a direct stake in the property values. So they could be more, you know, impartial. I mean, I feel like in the short term that might be preferable, but to me, the biggest problem with why this is even an issue in the first place, like why are these people, why does the fact that they own property in the neighborhood lead directly to this unreasonably kind of quote unquote risk averse attitude? And to me, the answer is that uh, they don't own very much outside of their homes. And that really is kind of like the, to me, such a relevant thing that I keep coming back to, especially in America, you know, that it's just so important for people to understand that the story of American history, particularly since the Great Depression, has just been a story of Americans owning less and less property over time. That's really what it, you know, uh, you do not have to go back very far at all in American history to a point where it was considered completely normal for the poorest people, particularly the poorest people, you know, to own their own homes, to own their own land, you know, to have control over their own livelihood. That's very much not the case, uh, even in, uh, you know, in these, in these rural communities where I'm at. And so, you know, people are desperate. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, like the the idea of having like a local um, group that could determine what can and can't be built uh, in the neighborhood, like a local ordinance like that. I mean, it actually, it makes sense, you know, but like fundamentally the problem is that people are living in communities that don't share the same ideology and worldview, you know? That aren't communities. Yeah. So yeah. like... So if if people were like building the same homogenous and same aesthetic structures all throughout the the town, and that's how they wanted to do their town, I mean, they should have the right to say that like some person from another state who moves in here and wants to build something completely different. I mean, they should have the like there should be a community say to that. I agree. It's like, and ultimately, it's like there will be. You know what I mean? Like, even if there isn't some legislative mechanism, like, they don't like what you're doing. They're going to burn it. Down, That's what the mob know? is for. Yeah. That's what the mob is for. <laughs> but so do you think they would give you, um, do you think they would give you issues personally? So dude, to be honest, um, I mean, at this point, like having 
started to dig into this process a little bit and kind of, exp- you know, I've been talking to a couple of uh, modular home building companies and um, it's, I'm kind of at the point where I'm beginning to seriously consider cutting my losses and going somewhere else to be completely honest with you. Wow. Are you getting like pushback uh, yeah. from the people there or? No, it's not so much pushback. It's just, this place is absurdly expensive. It is absurdly expensive. Um, what it costs to build a house here, the property taxes here, the incredibly low salaries that, that tend to be prevalent um, relative to the surprisingly high cost of living. This is a really expensive place to live. And I'm, I'm at the, like, I'm beginning to figure out that if I, if I play my cards just right, I can probably put a house on that property that puts me in a slightly better financial position in the long term. I can kind of get ahead of inflation with a fixed rate mortgage. If I do it just right, I might even be able to get my monthly cost down to lower, slightly lower than what it is now. Um, but I'm kind of just asking myself, like, do I need it? Do I need this place? Like, do I need to go further down this this hole of investing myself in this place, which is my biggest concern with Vermont is how rapidly it's globalizing. You know? <laughs> See, this this goes back to my point about whether it's coordinated or not. The like the market incentives of globalization end up driving all of this stuff, even on a local level. Like, yeah. so even like whether or not the, <laughs> whether or not your local, uh, like your local neighborhood board is conspiring with the Chinese or not, is kind of <laughs> absurd, but they're, they're still incentivized by the same, like they would still right. be incentivized to vote for and support the same economic Exactly. Policies. The point is they, they don't need to conspire. Exactly. You know, they don't need to know what they're doing. It's a, it's a system system of incentives. You know, I think that's um, going to be the next big thing is that they're going to start. I mean, especially now as people are leaving the cities, I think they're going to start really cracking down on uh, property owners and yeah. start disincentivizing home ownership. I mean, fundamentally I they, they're going to need people to work in the, like in the work camps in the cities yeah. and they want people yeah. to be there and consume. So they're going to incentivize people to, to go in the cities and stay in the cities, whether that's in the form of affordable housing or some sort of like UBI supplement yeah. or whatever. I mean, whatever slavery they've got for and them, I mean, you know? Joe Biden's already talking about trying to do um, 60% capital gains tax. So I think that's going to be the next thing that they do is um, like if you're owning stocks or property, mm-hmm. I think they're going to start coming after that extremely heavily um, with taxes under the guise of, like wealth inequality. And then I think right, they'll right, use right. that money then to try to distribute it to the urban centers, thus incentivizing mm-hmm. people to stay in the cities and not own homes. Like, I think that's ultimately where it's going, which is not, not good news. But I mean, the point being though, at some point, like people have to make a choice in their life of like, even if this isn't financially optimal, like this is how I want to live, you know? So like, yep. it's not all just totally. about the financial incentives on the individual yep. level. Like, you could be, I mean, ultimately like we're fighting these our whole lives, you know, but a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm using it as a means to an end, you know what I mean? But I'm, I'm trying to proceed with the understanding in mind that like the, the money aspect of this doesn't actually matter except to the extent that it gets me to living the way that I want to live. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I am just kind of wondering if, uh, particularly in the context of what you're saying, like that they're going to start cracking down and very likely pretty soon. Um, I feel the pressure to get myself into something now, you know, get grandfathered in. Well, you know, it's, uh, I don't even know that that's how that'll work, but it's like, I feel like I have to try. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to predict how anything like that would actually be instituted. Exactly. We got to try something. And like whether, you know, another interesting way that I've been thinking about it is like, they like in, it could just be a signal like to his base that they want to increase the taxes. But I mean, to me, like also to me, it's like the, the really rich people, like, wouldn't be harmed by that because they had, they like have tax advisors and financial um, financial planners who could yep. put their money in all. They the, know how to move their money. Yeah, around. yeah exactly. exactly. So, I mean, they wouldn't be affected by that, but it would be interesting to think about like what wider implications that would have on like the global market. So like that, maybe that, maybe that would be much harder for him to do than, than, than he thinks it would be, or than whether or not he knows that is irrelevant. But I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's also important to point out that it, it's not like it's starting now. Do you know what I mean? Like that the 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 decrease over time in property ownership, you know, that's from something. Yeah, and I'd I'd imagine inheritance tax is going to skyrocket over the next couple decades. Like any any like yeah. asset transfer or asset selling, I think is really going to be affected by all of this. But at, at the same time, though, like the point that I brought up before about Trump having to save the housing market. I mean, like there could be a lot of things like that that are put in like programs that are put in place purely to prevent the housing market from going down, you know, like who's mm-hmm. to say in 10 years, there's not a program that like if you're underwater on your house and you can't make your payments that the government will just make them because they can't afford to have the housing market go down. I mean, like that's equally yeah. as likely to me as increased taxes are, you know, like I think that kind of stuff is more likely in the short term um, but I do think that as, as I, I believe you're sort of alluding to, and you pretty much explained, like they just, they just can't do this forever. Like, you know, um, <laughs> this, this is, this is what I thought after 2008 too. And look where we are now. But I mean, well, I just, I mean, it's just farther down the road, you know, but they still, they can't do it forever. Like they can't maintain the guise of like, like at some point, it's either going to just straight up collapse and everybody's going to start burning everything down, which I think is kind of unlikely um, in America at this point. I just don't think Americans have that in them at this point. Uh, But I also, I think another likely outcome is, is that it'll just like, it'll just turn into a complete command economy basically. I, you know, I mean, the like way that the, the way that I think about it, the pretense. The way I think about it, it's like in two thousand and eight, it was like fifty percent. The mask was still on. Like it's like okay, this got mm-hmm. bad. We have to fix it, so we have to do this stuff. And like it's a believable story to some degree. Yeah, they're kind of holding it together yeah. still, you know. I think now we're at the point where it's like ninety percent off, where <laughs> most people know like sort of what's going on. But the problem, totally. like once it gets to like high 90s 100 percent, then you're gonna have people just taking advantage of all of this stuff and like that's where it those who can me. you know yeah, yeah yeah but like like maybe that's we're, like where the hyperinflation exactly like maybe we're right? just hanging on now but like if mm-hmm. this continues and more people start to realize what's going on they're just gonna take out as much debt as possible and do as much reckless 
spending and consumption as they possibly can. Like, because what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. So it's like, because you, because you know that ultimately like, you know, things like repossession, you know, that takes, that's a negative drag on GDP and we can't like, we, we can't have that. Like it just wouldn't, there's that, but, but even on a more like direct, like, you know, you need a, you need a sheriff to show up there with you and evict the person and all that kind of stuff. I don't think people like people just take all of these things for granted. Well, you know, this is this you know? is really interesting. Like, this is what we saw with um, the McCloskey case. Those two people who were out with the the guns protecting their house. Like, presumably, they had the legal protections to do this. But the next day, the police came and they took their guns, and there was mm-hmm. nothing they could do about it. And they yeah. got a court date. And just also to go back to the um, to the increased politicization point, like we know that the district attorney there who instituted all of that her campaign was funded by groups associated with george soros and like the democratic Mm -hmm. party so like it's gotten to the point where like even local district attorneys are fully politicized so like you can't like just because the law says something that is completely irrelevant to what can actually happen (laughs) you know like just because the police are on payroll doesn't mean they're going to show up for you it just doesn't exactly and and i think this is uh in a way this is kind of the one like major edge that you know the masses sort of have on the elites is that i don't understand how some of these people who are i mean i would describe them as you know the elites like people who like run the fucking world right you would i mean i i tend it I don't have a lot of kind of sympathy or love for them as human beings, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for their uh, ability to dedicate themselves to a mission and carry it out. You know, the, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's incredibly impressive like what these people have pulled off, you know, whatever else you want to say about it. I'm almost of the opposite opinion where like, I don't think like, like to me, it's like, the Rothschilds, Rockefeller, like these people knew what they were doing. They came up with the, like with the NGOs and schemes and all of this. But like now I think our elites actually believe this stuff. Like, I think they, I don't think they're like as, I don't know the word I'm looking yeah, for, like but like, a, like as in control. It's like, I see them almost as being just part of the incentive structure as opposed to actually like crafting it. I mean, I, I could be, I could be wrong about that, but like, to me, you know, like, I think, you know, I think Elon Musk really believes in all of the green energy stuff. I think he really does. I think Bill Gates really believes in yeah. all of the vaccine stuff. Like, but, but I don't think mm-hmm. that, um, like the Rockefellers, but, but he, I don't think he believed in his foundations. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like right. It was like the I, foundations I, were the method of social engineering for him. And he understood that. But like, uh-huh. to me, I don't think the, I don't think the elites really think that way now. I think they're all mostly falling victim to, to, to these own social engineering systems. I, I could be wrong, but that that's, that's my interpretation of it. I have to tell you, like, I don't know if I entirely, but like, I think there's definitely an extent to which that has to be true. Um, because it just seems to me that yeah, like, I think you're spot on when you notice that, you know, the modern elites, uh, have, have really kind of given up this mantle of social responsibility, you know, this like, uh, 
social responsibility, I guess, is a good way to describe it. You know, there was always a culture going back quite a while. I mean, even in America, uh, this kind of became proliferated again in the 19th century after the, um, especially after the Civil War, when when I, th- I, I would argue we got very kind of um, uh, uh, reintroduced to the kind of British imperial system in a lot of ways, culturally, politically, etc. But, you know, there was a lot of talk um, about just like how the, what am I trying to say here? The, the elites due to the, you know, the, the, the robber barons, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, you know, uh, even a lot of them would write about this. Like we owe this debt to society, you know, like in the narrative has always been going back from the, the Royal families, you know, of medieval times of like, you know, yes, we have a position of privilege over you people, but we owe you, you know, like you depend on us for certain things and we take those, those are our responsibilities to you. And I think you're absolutely correct that the modern elites don't have that. I also think that that's one of the funniest ideas I've ever heard. Like, I love that, you know, the idea that like, you know, they're, they're idiot kids, just like that there was, that there was this like cohesive global conspiracy and that they're, you know, their progeny is just too stupid to well, carry I, it I think forward. I think most people are just of their their descendants or not, not necessarily directly descendants, but they, they were children when the first NGOs and foundations and public relations things were all set up. And mm-hmm. just like everybody else, uh, there's no reason to think why most of them wouldn't believe it just like everybody else does, you know? Well, here's the reason to think. Here's the reason to think why they wouldn't, because their parents have the resources and have in fact uh, kept them quite sheltered from the kind of systems that most of the rest of us go through. Okay, but so, but if you were they go through private schools, you know what I mean? They go through college prep schools um, where they learn things like the trivium and quadrivium and if you were Mr. Rockefeller, would you tell your son that your charity was really a tax avoidance scam or would you rather him believe that oh dad's actually really a generous person and this foundation's important i, I mean <laughs> I, yeah, I i could actually I believe you. that i hear you i could see either side of it i feel like uh you know if i really had to answer that question i might say if i were rockefeller i would lie to him when he was young and at a certain point <laughs> i would you know take him aside and like tell him the the real thing <laughs> i'm imagining like a 90 year old man telling like a 70 year old son <laughs> he doesn't believe them, you know? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love that whole um that whole idea very much but um i don't know i think that just based on my understanding of how the system works particularly with regard to the mon- monetary system and with uh, shareholders of corporations rather than you know figureheads of corporations like ceos and whatnot that uh I just don't see how there isn't someone at the tippy top. Like I, 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 there, there just has to be because none of this happens when human beings are left to their own devices. Like it never happened before we had these, well, I mean, even the, just like the infrastructure, which these people built, by the way, you know, these families, Rockefellers, current, you know, they, they literally built the infrastructure, which has kind of now, allowed this level of globalization to take root. And um, I just, you know, I don't know where the, 
that conscious manipulation starts and where it stops. And I don't know, but I simply see too much intent in all of these things. No, no, no. There's definitely intent to me though. It's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be an individual, but it could just be everybody on the same page recognizes that globalization is going to make my stock portfolio increase. So everybody just starts pushing towards that and every corporation is incentivized to do so. We want access to the Chinese market. The Chinese market wants access to us and similar situation. And I really with every do other believe that. And I really do believe that at the very tippy top, like these elite families, you know, they, they believe deeply in like the eugenics narrative in my opinion. Well, I, I think, think, I think they, we saw a little peek of that with the Epstein thing. I don't want to go too deep into this yeah. whole, but I don't I know. I, you know, I don't even know anything about the Epstein thing. Frankly, like when I heard that whole story, I was just bored. Well, there was, been, there was this one, um, I forget her name now, but the one woman, and I mean, this is, this was her story. So you could, it's up to you to determine whether it's credible or not. She was an art student and she said that her university had like a partnership with the Guggenheim museum in New York. And they selected her to go there for like, like to work there. And then she met with this Ghislaine Maxwell lady. And then she offered her, um, like a, what is it called? I forget. Internship. It's whatever. sort of like an internship, like a paid thing as an artist. So she would come out to, um, Oh yeah. There's a term. So the story was she went out to this guy who used to be the CEO of Victoria's secret, um, Lex Wessner or something. I think less something like that. That's his name, but it's somewhere in the, in the Midwest. So she went out there for a couple months and she said she was essentially like kept, prisoner like in the house and then she said she saw people like being trafficked back and forth there but getting back to the eugenics point she said that there was a country club that she was told she would be able to go to but what like only went once or something but she told the story that everybody at the it was like a jewish country club and Mm -hmm. it was like extremely uh, like she said she was treated like she, she was a catholic girl she said and she said she was treated like as if she was inferior to these people and like they made it known to her like that oh you're not jewish like you're not like welcome here but that this is the first story that i've ever heard of anything like this but but going back to your point i mean like it's plausible you know and i think that could be could be a little bit of what's going on there but hard, hard to know you know yeah and i mean you know for the most part by the way that let me say a, a, a word about this whole Jewish thing. Cause I think it's kind of worth, I mean, I feel like I've mentioned on here before I come from a Jewish background. Um, I, I don't want to completely dismiss by any means, uh, cause there's a lot of truth to a lot of that talk, you know, the whole Jews running the world. Um, it's not, I think it's, it's one of those things where there is an element of truth and like anything else, uh, it can be focused on, hyper-focused on to the detriment of, of a, a kind of more holistic understanding. Uh, so, yeah, some Jews totally do run the world. Uh, <laughs> but but most Jews don't at all. You know, it's, uh, it's just so yeah, hard. My, myself and, and, and my most of my family very much included, um, you know. I, it's, it's not a, uh, the vast majority of the eugenics rhetoric comes from white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. I mean, in, uh, 
you know, especially in, in American history and, and in English history. Uh, but there is totally there. There is it's undeniable that there is some like Jewish wing of like these people, you know, and, and they they don't at least that's how it seems to me. I mean, I, I don't know like how these things interact. I don't know if it's like the non-Jewish ones are the exception and like the the Jews just somehow run all of the other oligarchs that we know of. I mean, I don't have any evidence for or against that proposition. Um, I don't know. But but uh, to me, it just seems like the the ethnic or religious aspects of this are, are much less relevant than just kind of a much broader. I'm not even entirely sure it's as based out of Europe as we sort of you know, know about, I think it's like a really, I've talked to you, Jay, in the past, uh, not on here, but just about this, about this guy. Um, uh, I don't remember his first name, but Proudy. He was the, he was the, um, he was on the joint chiefs of staff under president Kennedy. And if any of you have ever seen the Oliver Stone Kennedy movie, he was the character who was played represented by um, what's his name Donald Sutherland, the kind of anonymous general that should, or whatever he was, you know, a military officer who shows up and gives him the whole like explanation for why this is all this shady stuff going on. Um, so that guy actually, uh, Proudy, is a, a fairly prolific. I mean, he taught at Yale. He's he's really a, a genius of of that era, and. One of the things that he said that I thought was really interesting, because he was just kind of talking about all of this deep state stuff and, um, uh, you know, someone of his position with his insight, I take much more seriously, you know, when it comes to all that, all that kind of theory, um, because he just has, again, so much more insight into how these systems work. But he was saying, you know, like in terms of these people, you know what I mean? Like these, these conspirators who run things is like shadow government, whoever they are, uh, it, no one should be surprised if they happen to be from Asia, for instance. I mean, like the point he was making is, you know, China, for example, is pretty much the longest existing uh, kind of continuous culture that we know of in, in the world. And if you can kind of grasp and accept the narrative that, you know, what these people are ultimately up to is like extremely high level deception and manipulation. Why would you think that we would know who any of them are? You know what I mean? Like, why would you not assume that whoever we've heard of Rockefeller, Rothschild, whoever, you know, that those are figureheads basically. Well, I think it goes um, back to market access and who like who actually controls who could enter and who can leave the market. So I, I think that can sort of be traced out. Like like I think it would be hard to claim that it's a group of Chinese people running everything like in a post revolutionary World War 2 society in Europe, you know, like why? I just th- I, th- I think like in in establishing like new trade agreements and building up the local economy. I mean, like it's hard to imagine that, especially given how difficult like travel 
<laughs> just how difficult travel and coordination is like in previous eras, at least. Um, I don't know. To me. That's a fair point, actually. No, that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good point. I mean, I will say that now like, though, it's more, it seems, stuff, it seems pretty valid yeah. now though. I mean, cause you could coordinate. Well, see the other thing to keep in mind though, is that like most of this stuff really didn't happen until it had the technological means to happen. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a reason that we didn't really, uh, see this kind of global, you know, consolidation of like capital and glo- and, and central banks and things like that until the 19th century, you know, they, they just didn't have the, the communication or the, the transportation infrastructure to do stuff like that before. That. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to mention before we left the point, um, that story that I told was from an interview with, uh, Whitney Webb. She's like a journalist. Uh, I think mm-hmm. she's just like a freelance journalist covering all the, the Epstein stuff. She's been really good about it, but okay. I listened to the interview with her and this, uh, woman who claimed that she was abused. Um, and that's what the story was. But the point is that like, it could actually be verified. Like she named the club, and like knows where it is and like where she was. So like somebody could actually like go verify this. Like it's, it, it doesn't have to be like a, like a mystery or a conspiracy. Like I, I don't know if anybody just, if nobody's done it yet, but like they, they could go find, somebody could go find this club. <laughs> Not that I'm telling anybody to go do yeah. it, but, but it's like, it's a provable thing. I am. You know? Go do it. Go do it. <laughs> find it. Yeah, but like it's case. not like an intractable task to like verify this information. So like some somebody really could just go figure out if that's what's going on. I mean, it seems there's no will to investigate this. I mean, that seems to be the case, but but yeah, I mean, she makes specific claims in the in the interview and like she is very sporadic, but I mean, that's what you would expect from somebody who has been like sexually abused or something, you know, like that behavior would be consistent with with what she claims. So which also leads you to think that yeah. she could be embellishing or, I mean, that's also possible. So, I mean, but, but yeah, the point is like these claims could be substantiated. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly have no idea. I have not followed the Jeffrey Epstein story very closely at all. Um, and, and again, in, in large part, you know, as I mentioned kind of at the outside of this episode, like I just, I, I decided at a certain point that it makes more sense for me to try and look for the the bigger picture story with these sorts of things. And to me, it's much more relevant to simply point out that in the United States, every year, approximately 800,000 children go missing, never to be seen again. Um, that's a fact. Those are FBI figures. It's worth pointing out that approximately 200,000 of those 800,000 per year are uh, estimated to be cases where they're like, you know, they, they, the kid ran off and the parents called the cops and then the kid came back home and the parents just never followed up sort of thing. So um, that's 200,000. Right. So still, still 600,000. I mean, let's just even say, I mean, even if it were just half of that, <laughs> like, like just, you know, if we have 300 million Americans. I don't know what percentage of those are children, but um, if you kind of start to do the math on that, it's a it's a shocking, shockingly outrageously high number. You know, I remember the first time you like, told me about this, I was blown away by it. But like, I really I wonder how they. I, I haven't seen anybody like actually try to explain it, um, like in full. Uh, I mean, I, it's. Uh, it, it, I don't really know if there's much of an explanation for it, other than you know, some pretty, 
pretty scary stuff. I mean, I suppose you can go down the speculative rabbit hole and, you know, it, it all just depends on how closely uh, law enforcement is able to kind of follow up on these records and keep them accurate. There, there's just too much I don't know about it to really be able to. But the very fact that that's even like, because like if that were illegitimate, you know, you'd be hearing about it from the FBI. You would think so, yeah. right? You know, one one yeah. question that I would have about it is like, if that's true, like where are the parents of these people? Like, So, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. And um, if you just look at the demographics in the United States, I, I don't actually think it's hard, it's implausible at all to assume that what you're talking about in the majority of cases are just the, mo- the poorest and most downtrodden people. It's their kids uh, because they just don't have the influence over much of anything to necessarily do anything about it. I mean, I think a lot of people underestimate the extent to which you know, poor people in the United States, like, might not even go to the police, you know, uh, because they just don't see that system as functioning in their best interest. And I think that applies to uh, black and white and Latino and just t- lots and lots of the American population, I think, at this point is so disaffected that um, I just don't think they, they feel like there's anything they can do. Interesting. Maybe maybe one of our listeners can get back to us with an answer yeah. or an explanation. I would, yeah, if you guys have more information on this, I mean, um, but um, I just think it's really uh, something, something to think about. <laughs> For sure. A little bit of a dark note to, to end this on, but I do feel like we're kind of reaching a natural conclusion here. Any, uh, any last minute points you wanted to make on all this? No, no, let's end it. Okay, man. This was this was good. Uh, thank you guys all very much for your continued support and uh, for your patience and bearing with us as we go through some interesting and adventurous times in our lives. And uh, we look forward to the next episode talking to you guys. It's always fun. Thank you. Bye.